Please turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we will finish up this chapter today. I thought about breaking this into two weeks, but I thought we would lump it all together as it does all kind of make one, one big point. There's a lot here, admittedly. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer and ask for help as we come to His Word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we are told over and over again in this book, even from the first words of this book, you are the Son of God. You are the Savior. You are the Most High God. And as we come to you, we we open your word this morning and we find ourselves lacking. We find it to be true and ourselves to be only true sometimes at best. We find it to be wise and we find ourselves to be foolish. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us because we need help when we come to your word. We need your help that you would guide us in it, that you would show us your truth, that you would teach us from it, that you would change us, that you would transform us, renew us within. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read this passage, it made me think of a particular line of Roman emperors. I know that sounds really strange, but it'll all make sense. You've all heard Julius Caesar, right? Shakespeare wrote something about him, and he's, he's pretty popular. But when he was alive, he was one of the first Roman emperors to think himself to be God, to be a God. He wasn't the first ruler to think that at all. He was, In fact, he probably borrowed a lot of these ideas from his visits around the world. He went to places like Egypt, and of course Egypt saw all of their leaders as deities. So Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh, but Julius Caesar thought, you know what, that may be a good idea. He claimed to be an ancestor of the god Venus, or the goddess Venus, and so forth. He thought, well, we, you know, people should recognize this. And so it kind of happened throughout his own reign, but it wasn't until after he died. He was famously assassinated, of course. We were probably all aware of that. After his assassination... There was a festival that was planned in honor of his name, during which, in the middle of this festival, during broad daylight, this bright comet appeared in the sky. So bright that you could see it in the daytime, which is pretty cool. People saw it, and they just knew what it was. They said, that has got to be the soul of Julius going to be with the other gods. And it stuck. And they started to worship him, Julius Caesar. And then his adoptive son, Augustus, who was probably the most famous of the Roman emperors, he was so popular and brought so much peace to the land, he brought peace through violence, but peace nonetheless, that they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Augustus was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, and he was dead at the time of Jesus' ministry, which is going to play important to today. So Mark, consider this, consider Mark's writing in the context in which he's writing, writing to a bunch of Romans, begins his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Augustus was not the Son of God. Jesus is. He depends on the next several chapters of the book, Mark does, in order to build this whole argument that Jesus is indeed Son of God. How does he do that? 
through showing the signs and wonders and the teachings of Jesus, who taught as one who had authority. The scribes and Pharisees even recognized that about him. That brings us to today's passage, which is really a major turning point in the book of Mark. It's an important text for Christians who lived under emperor worship then to have grabbed a hold of, and for ones who still think that it's our glorious leader that's going to save us today. Front and center in our text today, of course, is Peter's confession. You are the Christ, is what Peter says. And with that, we have directives on how we are to live in response to that. We, like Christ, are to take up our crosses daily and follow him. What does that mean? We're going to get into that. As we go through the text today, I'm going to break it up into three points. First, the office of Christ, then the work of Christ, and then finally the commission of Christ. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27, reading through to the end of the chapter. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, what do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet to forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, just to set us up from last week, remember last week Jesus healed a man. He healed him in such a way as to demonstrate to the disciples that he is bringing them along as they struggled in their faith. Remember he touched the man's eyes and said, did that work? Kind of. And the man said, no. We, We said Jesus could have healed him completely if he'd wanted to the first time, but he chose not to. For various reasons. We went through those last week. Remember, after Jesus fed the 4,000, they had plenty of leftovers for the disciples. Yet, when they got in the boat, they still wondered what they were going to eat. Jesus showed them. He says, basically, look, I'm taking care of you. Your, your God is among you. He does as He pleases. Thankfully, it just so happens that it pleases Him more than anything than to provide for His own. So this interaction between Jesus and his disciples is the next step in their own training, as it were. 
And as I said earlier, it kind of serves as a pivot point, a major pivot point in the book. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to proceed into Jerusalem where he is received like a king, only to be killed like a criminal soon thereafter. So as we look at the passage today, it's important for us to see it as the beginnings of the preparation for the disciples, for their eventual work in the gospel, for their eventual fate even, as they all died martyrs. And it serves as a reminder for us, those who are called to that same work. So let's look at the first point, the office of Christ. Verse 27, Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? They traveled to this place called Caesarea Philippi. You can see the word there, Caesar, embedded right in there. Caesarea Philippi was named after one of Herod's sons, Philip. More important than that, it was given that moniker, Caesar. Herod himself erected a temple to Caesar Augustus right there in Caesarea Philippi. So there was a center for emperor worship among the Gentiles there. This isn't insignificant. Consider what Jesus now asks his disciples on the way to Caesarea Philippi. Here's one of the sinners for Roman emperor worship and the actual son of God asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And notice the mix of responses that he gets. They told him John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. John, remember, was killed by Herod, but Herod, when he heard of Jesus, he started to think that maybe John had been raised from the dead. So people were starting to spread that rumor. Some say Elijah. Remember the prophecy in Malachi concerning Elijah going to return at those in those times. That some thought, well, maybe this is the second coming of Elijah. I'm sure that was necessary. And then some of some of them said one of the prophets. Because the Jewish people had been without a prophet for so long. And now all of a sudden, John is with them and Jesus is with them. And now maybe they're going to see this is finally the prophet, perhaps, that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. The people were unsure about Jesus because maybe they had only heard tales. They hadn't seen him. They hadn't been with him. They hadn't actually saw the things that he was doing. Sure, lots of people did, but there were lots of people who hadn't. Whatever it was, there likely wasn't a majority consensus of the folks in the area. They knew he was special. They just weren't sure how special he was or what kind of special he was. So then Jesus turns the question to his disciples. And for once, they're going to get it right. Verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. We've seen this a lot of times in this book, and again, Jesus is kind of measuring his time so that he doesn't get to this crazy popularity all at once. But we'll look at Peter's confession more closely. Peter is kind of the spokesperson for the group. We see this throughout the Gospels where he does a lot of the speaking. Maybe it's not because he was the leader, but because he was just the one who had to do the first talking. We all know people like that. Peter was really quick to speak a lot of times. So he may have just spoken out of turn or he may have been representing group consensus. Either way, he gets it exactly right here. Does he not? Considering the broader context again, 
They're in a Roman center for worship, of Roman emperor worship. So this is supposed to be the, the center for the worship of Augustus, or one of the centers. Peter was a Jewish man. Consider that also. And in the Jewish tradition, they were looking forward to this one coming to be the Messiah, who was going to be the Savior, God's Son, the Anointed One of Israel, who would sit on the eternal throne of David. You see that in Psalm 2. You see that throughout the Psalms. You see that throughout the Old Testament. Ultimately, all of these point to this one who is called God's Son, the Redeemer, the Messiah. And so Peter, in the center of Roman worship, a Jewish man bound by Jewish tradition, says, you are the Christ. If our pronouncement of Jesus as the Christ, and this is important, aligns itself perfectly here with what the gospel teaches us, then it's right. Absolutely. If it aligns itself, however, with the thoughts of the world, with the traditions of man, then we believe in a Jesus that is not in the scriptures. This is going to become more clear in just a bit, so I'll leave it kind of hanging. It's important. This is what Jesus is getting to here. But if we believe, if what we believe about Jesus doesn't match the teachings of Jesus, then we need to be careful because idolatry is strongly forbidden in the scriptures. And it's really the work of Satan, is it not, to get us to worship other gods or perhaps even to get us to worship ourselves. Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And any worship of other gods is ultimately worship of him and for his work. So with that stated, it works right into our next point, the works of Christ. Look with me at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. So imagine this. Peter says, you are the Christ. And when he says, you are the Christ, that attributes to him that he is the Son of God. He's not just some guy. He is this one that has been prophesied. He is supposed to lead the people. He is supposed to usher them into a new time in which all things are going to be made new again. We read that in Isaiah even. And so here, immediately after this confession of Peter, Jesus starts to talk about he's going to suffer, be rejected, and then die. That's pretty tough, right? Now this wouldn't have been new to a Jewish ear at the time. In fact, it was known that the anointed one of God would be one that would sacrifice himself for the good of people. We see it throughout the Psalms. We see it explicitly and precisely played out in in Isaiah chapter 53. So you can really picture Jesus here walking them through the Old Testament even as he's talking about these things. And Peter is going to write a couple of letters that we're going to have access to, First and Second Peter. He quotes Isaiah 53 a couple of times in his own letters, but here, here he wants nothing to do with but to hear about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so with his chest still puffed out from his confession, he pulls Jesus aside to correct him. Verse 32. And he said this plainly. Jesus didn't mince words. He rarely did, if ever. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine that, Peter, who had recently been worried about how they were going to eat after Jesus had just fed 4,000 people out of basically nothing, now pulls the Son of Man inside to instruct him about his own words. Imagine reading something in the Bible, not liking it, and then praying, correcting God about the errors in his word. God, I just read something and I don't like it. You need to hear this from me. We can't even imagine doing that, right? Careful, because every time we sin, we pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Here, Jesus doesn't have this at all, though, because he pulls, he pulls, uh, the, he pulls Peter aside and he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To pull Jesus aside and rebuke him is to say the opposite of Jesus is the Christ. It is to say that someone else is, or perhaps even I am the Christ. And an idol worshiper is a devil worshiper. So Jesus says what he says. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your things on the minds of, on the things of God, or mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. By telling Jesus that he no, had no business dying, Peter is saying, no, Jesus, there is another way. Let me tell you about it. It's like Eve looking at the fruit and seeing that it had the ability to make one wise and taking a bite. And that's the real of it. Peter knew that whatever fate Jesus suffered, it would also be his own. You have to understand that. He's in thick with Jesus now. Everyone sees them together. For Jesus to say, I'm going to suffer rejection and death, is for Peter to also align with that and say, yes, we too are going to suffer these things. For Jesus to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes would mean the same thing was going to happen to Peter. For Jesus to say, I'm going to be killed, would mean that Peter is also going to suffer that same fate. And I think so many times we fall into the same sin as Peter here. We set our minds on the things of earth rather than the things of God when it comes to what God is telling us directly and plainly. We make everything that we do about it, really. Even our, even our religion. You know, we think about our own preferences or how am I being served or what am I getting out of this? We make our lives about it. I just need to be happy because God would, would want me to be happy and I need to do what's best for me right now. My rights are important. And we quickly find ourselves behind, G, G, or behind Peter after Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. There is an answer for this life. The work of the follower of Christ is the work of Christ himself. This doesn't mean that we're offering ourselves as an atonement at all for sin. That's obviously, we are the reason for the atonement. However, we are offering ourselves. And that's what Jesus is getting to next. And that brings me to the next point, the commission of Christ. So look with me at verses 34 and following. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when it comes when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus turned this teaching, and he turned this moment with Peter, not only to a moment not only with his disciples, but also for the crowd that was there. And he had them all gathered around. This wasn't to humiliate Peter in any way, to point him out as the one who said the thing that everyone else was thinking. Peter had already been dealt with and would be again continually. Yet there are important lessons for all here. There's an actual cost to following Jesus Christ. Jesus said that if you would follow him, you would take up your own cross daily. Think about what that means. We all have heard these words. We've all said them even. We all kind of like the way they sound. They make it sound real super spiritual. But think about what it says. Taking up your cross daily. What types of people took up their cross in those days? They weren't just everyday people. They were people who were getting ready to go die. This means to lose one's life rather than to save it. This means to give up the world rather than to seek to gain it. This means to take on yourself the name of Christ rather than be ashamed of it. The world is the exact opposite of these things, brothers and sisters. We understand that as we've been going through the book of Romans. We understand that full well. The world is all about self-preservation. Saving rather than losing. Even preservation of self over the preservation of others. We see this all the time. It's almost like animal kingdom, even among our, even among humanity. The gathering of things is paramount to this also. You're defined by the things that you have, in fact, by the people that you know, by the money that you earn. You're in, the entire education system is built that way. The economy depends on these desires for people to want more things. Wars are fought to protect those desires. All of society is built around the idea that we will preserve ourselves and we will gather things to ourselves. And the only name that we're trying to make is the one for ourselves. We will build a tower that reaches to the heavens. We will name it after ourselves. And these desires haven't changed at all. Adam and Eve had them. The people of the Tower of Babel had them. Peter and the crowd had them here. So do you and I. Because we know what it means to say that there is a God and I'm not him. We'd rather say there is a God and I can probably be him if I try really hard. Julius Caesar thought it. Augustus thought it. The people who worshipped them for years and years thought it. And in fact, they brought sacrifices to these gods, to temples like the one in Caesarea Philippi. And they burned them at the altar of the emperors. There were going to be some who would resist those sacrifices and wouldn't do it. And they wouldn't bow to Caesar. They wouldn't offer sacrifices because instead they were offering themselves to Christ. They would not say Caesar is Lord. When Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him, he would later be crucified upside down because he refused to offer anything to Nero but the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what about you? Would you follow after Jesus Christ? 
Because look what Jesus says, what it means to follow him. These aren't my words, they're plain. He speaks plainly. Notice what that means. A follower of Christ doesn't indulge self, but rather dies to self. Follower of Christ doesn't offer sacrifices to the gods of this world, yet offers themselves wholly to God as a living sacrifice. Not to be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Why a living sacrifice? Why don't I just lay my life down at the altar of Christ, literally taking my own life? Because that price has already been paid, has it not? Jesus came to pay that price. He suffered many things. He was rejected by the elders, the scribes, the chief priests. He was rejected by all of them. He was killed. His sacrifice was a once-for-all payment for the idolatry of me, for you, for all of his people. He paid for my idle heart. And his resurrection after three days was his once-for-all securing victory over sin and death for the life of the child of God. Those whom have been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That's us. His death bought that for us. His resurrection secured our eternal place with him. So this isn't about your sacrifice somehow making your relationship with God better or more secure. We talk about this all the time because you need to hear it all the time. So do I. It's about looking at what he's done for you and asking yourself, what are you willing to do for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel? What does it profit you to gain the whole world if you already have Jesus? What more do we need? How could you possibly be ashamed of the one who will one day present you to the Father? You'll be wearing robes of righteousness that you didn't earn and that you don't deserve. This is a hard teaching. Because it causes us to question all the commitments that we have, and it should. We have to be careful here because it doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to earn money or have possessions or seek better, seek to better ourselves as people, none of those things. In fact, I would say that it actually encourages those things when they are done for the right reasons. I think that what a believer should do and really always should be doing is to question our own motives for things. Talk to someone you trust. Have them ask you hard questions about your motives. Let me encourage you to do that. People see it sometimes when we don't see it about ourselves. These instructions from Jesus are ultimately there so that we might glorify him more. So that it serves as a good starting point for us. I've heard too many over the years use this passage as a way to manipulate people into feeling guilty about just living life. It should cause us to look closely at our lives. Actually, absolutely. Are we serving Jesus? Are we following after Christ? Are we denying ourselves that we might take up our cross and follow him? Is that what we're doing? Are we seeking to save our lives instead? Are we seeking to offer ourselves to him? So in conclusion, Jesus is the Christ. Whatever thing you would put in that place is absolutely false all the time. Let our prayer be that he would take us aside and rebuke us for anything that we would seek to replace him with. Anything. And let us be a place of hope and comfort for a lost world that continues to seek a lost world. Let us be faithful to the name of Jesus Christ, that they may seek him and find him and glorify his name. Let's go to him in prayer.
Our Lord Jesus, so many times we read this confession that Peter has here. You are the Christ. And we say those words, but do we really mean them? When we look at our lives, do our lives echo the confession that we make? Lord, we pray for your help with that. Because we know that the world is watching. As we read in Romans, they blaspheme because of the way that we are, because of the words that we say, because of the things that we do. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us because we are weak on our best days, but you are always strong. And so, Lord, help us to lean on you. Help us to find our fullness in you. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.